Hello, I'm Mark Olson. And I'm Yvonne Villarreal. You're listening to The Envelope, the LA Times podcast where we go behind the scenes with your favorite stars from TV and film. Today's guest is Chilean director Pablo Lorraine, who you may know from his previous films such as Jackie or No. His latest film, Spencer, stars Kristen Stewart as the late Princess Diana, and it's definitely a very unique take on her story. And that is probably hard to do because, for better or worse, Princess Diana has been inescapable these days. There's been a few depictions of her recently, The Crown, Diana the Musical. I heard about a documentary at Sundance. What sets this project apart? Well, first of all, the film really only spans three days in Diana's life just before she decides to leave the royal family. And then in terms of tone, well... Let's just say it's more similar to The Shining than it is to Cinderella. (laughs) I want Maggie back. Someone heard Maggie saying she thinks you're cracking up. What? Yes, everyone here hears everything. They just don't always tell you what they've heard. And the last important thing to know is that while the filmmakers do draw on true events, the story is almost entirely fictional. In fact, Spencer opens with a title card that declares it a fable, based from a true tragedy. Well, there's there's something that we unfortunately all know, which is the tragedy. Diana, Princess of Wales, died in the car crash that also killed her companion, millionaire Dodie Fayed. They were riding in a Mercedes. by at least five photographers on motorcycles. The driver lost control. The driver of the car that crashed and killed Princess Diana and her boyfriend had an illegal level of alcohol in his bloodstream. The legal limit is rather We also have those things, there are probably many, that we don't know. Once those doors are locked, we have no idea what happened inside. And and that is what we do, you know, we work around fiction. And I think using the word fable, it just makes us honest with the audience and also makes us free with any other kind of uh, perception. This is a work of fiction. And believe me, after a very long research and after making this movie, I don't really know who she was. And I've heard you say that before, that like at the end of making this film, you still don't feel like you know her or understand her really any more than you did when you started. Is that surprising to you? Like to me, it's surprising to hear you say that. But it, it, it is surprising. And it's interesting because you, when you start, you have the desire to know that person better. And then you do get to know a lot more things that you didn't know. Um, we do have a lot of specific information. Steve uh, Nyder, writer, had a lot of uh, research and information and talked to people that was near her uh, during those years in the family. And they said a lot of things that we can relate to. But from the information that we have around, can we really conclude who she was? I don't think so. So in a way, I think that the biopic as a concept is a little bit of a fantasy. I don't think you can actually capture someone on a film. But ultimately, she was someone that was very human, and and that is where where we wanted to connect with. Mm -hmm. And was there anything that you felt strongly that had to be in the movie, that there was like certain factual things or things that you felt you, you maybe felt you knew about Diana that you wanted to be sure you got in the movie? I, I, I was very curious to try to understand her relationship with her kids. Diana was able to, to be supported by them 
you know, not only support them, she was able to understand that she could be who she wanted to be thanks to those kids too. Um, and also I felt that it was important to to have the audience really get to know her relationship with the people that was not in the family, the staff members. That's why we get to see her interacting so intimately with um, Maggie, which is the dresser that's played by wonderful Sally Hopkins. They asked me just suggest that you see a doctor. And then, of course, with Darren, the chef, which is Sean Harris in the film. Stories of ghosts, cutting off of heads, and any old thing that you might say, they get repeated here. She had a very natural and intimate approach to the people that worked for the family. And that's probably another angle of her personality that we wanted to explore, to, to know why was she so interested in, in talking and sort of being so natural with people that, that was not in the family. There, there's something there, I think. She, she was looking for something. She was looking for this sort of idea of normality, of regularity. As you mentioned that for you, this movie really became a story of identity and, and motherhood and the, the relationship between Diana and her sons, William and Harry, it really is the heart and the light of the movie. Can you talk a little bit more about how that came to kind of be the focus? In, in my case, in the early 90s, when the movie uh, said, I had the same age of those kids, Right, kind of, and I'm a little bit older, I believe, than them. But but I have the same generation, so I, in an awkward way, I saw myself reflected on them um, as a son too, you know. And the fact, probably, that I saw my own mother being so interested in Diana for so many years made me think about my own mother, um, and I think that could happen to a lot of people that you could see yourself reflected on people that is very different from you. Um, and that scene with the, the candlelight when they play this army game. Major William, soldier Diana. Um, what's your favorite color? What, what's your favorite? Sir, pink. No. And favorite food? Um, Sir, a pink, pink, um, hippopotamus cake. Spotted. When we shot that, I understood how relevant those kids were for Diana and how sad and moving, you know, her figure should be for them nowadays, I think. Um, so the interaction in between, you know, Diana and those kids became a space of protection for her, was a, a space of truth, a, a space of, of love and, and a space of family. Major William to Soldier Diana. Tell the Major what's happened to make you so sad. Sir, don't know what you mean, sir. I want a true soldier. Sir, the past, sir. I think it's the present soldier. And I think she understood that nothing was going to change in the relationship with those boys if she were to leave the family as she did. So, so in a way, I think that those kids make her understood that she could have her own life unrelated to the royal family, and she did it. So I think there is a very beautiful connection. She is someone that by the end uh, understands who she wants to be, understands that her identity is really around herself and no one else. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, there is some certain level of optimism 
that I, I have to admit I have never worked with something like that before. Um, I'm usually working in a, in a darker space, if you want to say. Um, and I found myself uh, filming a movie that has the main characters with her two children singing by the hand. That moment, it's such a beautiful, you get this sense of the reclamation of her identity for herself, that she's like kind of coming back into her own as who she wants to be and who she can be as she's singing that song with the boys. And then... Can I take your order? They go to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Three times chicken, three times fries, two colas and an orange juice, please. I don't know how really to put it, but it's like it's to me, it's such a curious thing. I mean, there's some just odd juxtaposition of the Princess of Wales at KFC. And what name is it? Spencer. What was it that you liked about ending on that moment and, you know, having them go from these, you know, fancy meals at the palace to happily eating fast food? Well, I think that there's a desire in in, in people that it's, you know, extremely well known, people that has uh Life there or in, in magazine or televisions or documentaries, they all want to have a, a slice of, of normality. They all want to go to a fast food restaurant without being recognized. They want to have a, a simple, regular life. So I think that ending means that they, they choose to eat something simple with their hands, something that, is, that everyone could have access to. Um, I think that's what it is. I think it's a desire to be normal. So it kind of made sense. And then later, uh, someone sent me a picture of uh, Prince William uh, looking at, uh, I don't know if you've seen that, um, looking through the glass in a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. So oh, no. it, was, it was a funny connection. Yeah. <laughs> and is there a part of you that would want the real life, the adult William and Harry to see the movie? And if they did, what would you hope they'd take away from it? I don't, I don't know. I... I I hope they see our intentions and I hope they understand that we care a lot about Diane's figure and I hope they connect with the film as we do. Well, I I have to be sure to ask you just about working with Kristen Stewart, I mean, it really is such a brilliant performance by her. And it's funny, it's one of those things where, from the perspective of now having seen the film, it's hard to imagine anyone else in that role in this film. But I think a lot of people were surprised by her casting in the first place. And and what was it that drew you to casting her in the role? Well, I guess, first of all, admiration for her work and for who she is. I saw a, a number of films. That there's a movie called Personal Shopper that she did with uh, Olivier Asayas. Mm-hmm. And in that film, there's no way you could actually understand her really well. And, and there's an element of uh, magnetism and some strange idea of mystery that she carries. And I felt that, that the only way to properly portray this version of Diana is throughout the things that you don't give away. So I think Kristen is someone that in the shoes of this character could 
say what she was feeling, could express what she wanted, could, you know, verbally um, and physically mention uh, many things that she was going through. But at the end, you don't really know what she's feeling. And she can create that, that idea of trying to capture something that you would never be able to capture. And that interaction, I think, is very interesting. It doesn't fit. Have you tried it on? No, with my mood. It doesn't fit with my mood. It should be black. Black to contrast the pearls. When we got into the more practical things that he had to go through, uh, and it was it was really her job, which is basically the accent and, and how to mimic uh, certain things of the physicality of Diana, I was very surprised how fast she got it. And Diana's bodyguard uh, saw the movie, and he said that Kristen was really, really close to her. That's a very good source. You know, that guy knows and knew her and knows more than anyone. And that was something that is completely great to Kristen. Because a number of uh, reviews, a lot of the writing about the film has mentioned the sort of real sensitivity with which you depict Diana's eating disorder. How did you all sort of come to navigate how to depict her bulimia as part of the character? It was written like that. It was written uh, when she was, you know, going through those problems. And it was very specific. So we had a bathroom, and I remember that I was operating the camera, and Kristen comes in, and before I even say anything, she said to me, let me do this. Let me try this. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be here. And then we shot it. Yes, I know. You know, what I think is more interesting than anything in my perception is not only when she has the physical problem, right, and of the bulimia, the result that we all know what that is, but it's really the aftermath. How she feels after it, how she touches her forehead, how she's sweating this cold sweat. What is the emotion? What is the type of repression that she's expressing? We know that bulimia and any eating disorder is the consequence of psychological distress. And that's something, for example, that Diana herself expressed many times over her life and how bulimia became an externalization, a physical problem due to her problems with the family. Uh, and then you realize that all this fantasy, uh, it's really a very heavy giant that is stepping on her shoulders. And it's uh, that idea of royalty and the idea of this uh, sort of fairy tale that we might believe that is going on there is really a tale of panic and pain. The humanity and the fragility that Kristen had when we did that, it was very relevant too, because she lost it there in a good way as an actress, and, and, and it was just beautiful to see. More with Pablo Lorraine after the break. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with future episodes, make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. 
And we're back. Let's pick things up where we left off with director Pablo Lorraine, whose film about Princess Diana called Spencer is much closer to horror than it is to history. One thing that I think really does set Spencer apart is the fact that it plays so much like a horror movie. I mean, many people in writing about the movie have compared it to The Shining with these long, you know, shots of of Kristen Stewart as Diana in these hallways and some of the characters may or may not be ghosts. For you, where did that feeling, that just sort of sense of growing dread come from? Does it feel like a horror film to you? Well, I understand it. And and I think that when we communicate things, we need to put the things in boxes, right? And and we need to describe them in a way that that we could all understand it. And, And then the horror idea comes up. I get it. I I do think that when you put the perspective of a film in someone's point of view uh, so closely, and then you start seeing the things that that person can see, um, you can get into a it's just a space of horror. But I, I think that we all go through those things every day. We, if I were able to describe what you see or any of us see every moment when we see our reflection in a mirror or in a glass, or we have a memory because we saw a picture in our phone, and then those things um, can have a, a state of mind of panic, and everything you see is an extension of Diana's psychological perception. The use of mirrors, the use of rocks, carpets, colors, the logic of the hallways, uh, the difference in between upstairs and downstairs, uh, the first floor, the doors, the gates, the, the scarecrow, the jackets. Uh, it's its a number of things. And, and of course, if you have Johnny Greenwood helping you on it, that could go into a place where some horror uh, can be uh, described. And I think it was very particular. state of panic comes from the use of jazz, right? And which is very unique. And jazz can be the most free of, of the forms of music, but at the same time, it can be the most uh, complicated one. And I think that is an interesting balance, I believe. There's so many parallels, I think, between Spencer and your 2016 film, Jackie, starring Natalie Portman, that, you know, follows Jacqueline Kennedy over several days following the assassination of JFK. The Attorney General relayed to me your desire for a more modest ceremony. I've changed my mind. I'm sorry? I said I've changed my mind. We will have a procession, and I will walk to the cathedral with the casket. Well... Even if we could resume the arrangement. Do you feel like you have a special interest in this idea of like a hyper specific flashpoint moments in history? Like, I guess I'm wondering, as much as people like me want to make connections between the two films, what for you are the connections between the two films? Well, there are many, but I, I have to say the first thing is that I, I never planned it. Um, I was invited <laughs> uh, by Darren Aronofsky to, to do uh, Jackie. 
And then we, we got in and, and Natalie accepted and, and did a beautiful, beautiful job. And I think that, you know, that the many connections in between them and the many things that are very different. I think they were both women that shaped the, the second half of the 20th century, women that were linked to powerful families, uh, they were married to powerful men, uh, but they were women that were able to find their own path in that difficult environment. And that is something that I think is very interesting and beautiful to see and to put on film. Um, they were used and manipulated by media, but they were also knew how to deal with them somehow. But at the same time, they're, they're very different. I think Jackie is a movie probably more about legacy and, and memory. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Spencer is more about uh, motherhood and identity. Um, and I looked up and I tried to see if they ever met. And I don't think they ever met. I don't think uh, Jackie and Diana ever were ever together. But that's another movie, which could be very interesting, by the way, you know, how <laughs> they were aware of each other. It's funny. I've heard so many people ask you what sort of the next public woman you wanted to make a movie about would be. And I hadn't even thought of the idea that like you do a a sort of a Jackie Diana, you know, have lunch together movie. That like that that in itself is like a fascinating idea. But that that would be entirely fiction. I don't think they ever met. <laughs> I want to take just a couple minutes to sort of step back a little bit to talk about your sort of interest in filmmaking, you know, you grew up in Santiago, Chile during the time of the the Pinochet regime. And I've heard you talk before about, you know, that was a difficult time for artists. And I'm just so curious, growing up in that environment, what drew you to filmmaking in the first place? Um, I will say that I grew up in a very sort of privileged context. So I wasn't really um, going through through any kind of travel as I grew up. Um, but I think that was still photography what, what drew me into filmmaking. And then, you know, certain movies that just affected me uh, strongly as I grew up uh, and movies that belong to, I guess, to a more, more of sort of a pop culture world that made me aware of, of cinema and the use of time. You know, how can you work around time? And I think, it, I don't know, I feel that, that cinema can be the most interesting travel time machine ever uh, built and made by culture. Uh, so that stayed with me. Um, and I think that literature too, I think uh, Latin American poetry and, and fiction helped me to, to find a space that, you know, can hopefully connect in, in other cultures like yours and, and maybe, uh, you know, in other countries. But your filmmaking has such a, a strong relationship to the idea of power and how sort of power exerts itself and influences itself on people's lives. And I can't help but wonder if that in some way is a reflection of, you know, what you saw when you were growing up. It's possible. I'm not sure how it, it affected me, but it, it's possible. I think that power can seduce anyone and and creates a, a distortion and Sometimes that distortion can have consequences very sort of regular people, like in movies I made like Tony Manero or Postmortem, or no, or can be affecting people like Jacqueline Kennedy or Diana. And I think power, it's a wonderful um, description of how fragile we are as a humankind. 
and I think that that brings interesting dramatic problems and um, I'm there to film them uh, as I can, I guess. <laughs> you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think both your parents held positions in the government there in Chile. And again, I can't help but wonder like how that sort of impacted you know, the way you approach politics in your work or if it's even impacted your own personal politics. Yeah, my, my father has been a politician for many years, but uh, it's in the other side of my political ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's been a whole thing all over my life. Uh, but it's hard for me to look back and, and be able to define how exactly it had an impact on me. For sure it, it had and it still has. Uh, we had elections uh, in my country, and, and I'm very excited and happy because we elected a 35 years old man. Mm-hmm. as a very young uh, guy from the left uh, who's there to hopefully change certain things around equality that we really need to change in our, in our society. And, and I was very happy to see him be elected. And, and those are the things that I care. And I, I think I, I want to be aware of where I'm standing, and I want to be part of the process of my own country and society. And in the course of your career, do you feel like representation of Latin American culture has improved in Hollywood? Like, do you feel more accepted, you know, when you're trying to get projects going than you were maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago? I think so. I think it's better, but I think it's far from being in the right spot yet. I think I have lived, you know, the paradox of making movies in Spanish and in English and how quickly those that are in English get a massive distribution and, and they are immediately, um, they create a, a huge amount of interest in distributors, in the press. And and I think that, that that's not great. I, I wish we would be in a situation where films can be, you know, supported by their ideas and not just the language or the cultural um, elements that they're describing. And I, I think, you know, people like Alfonso Guarón or, or, or Pedro Almodóvar in our language have, have really made it possible for a lot of people. And, and people like Bon Joon Hu, I, I think when Parasite won uh, Best Picture, I was like, oh, it finally happened. And the Oscar goes to Parasite. It was a huge moment for history of cinema, I think, not only because the movie is wonderful, but also because it, it was able to connect so many people in a Korean movie. Um, so I'm planning to, to keep working in, in my language, in, in my country, in my society. But again, it's, it's a cultural thing. And, and, and the more open we are to different narratives, different people and faces, colors, voices, tones, accents, and languages, the more interesting our culture will be. I think it's very simple. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of The Envelope. I'm Yvonne Biariev. And I'm Mark Olson. If you haven't already, please make sure to follow The Envelope wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review and recommend The Envelope to a friend. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. This episode was produced by Hiba Elorbani and Asal Asanapur and edited by Jasmine Aguilera. Our engineer and composer is Mike Heflin. And special thanks to Shawnee Hilton, Clint Shaw, Tova Weinstock, Amy Wong, Chris Price, Ross May, 
Patricia Gardner, Jeff Berkshire, Elena Howe, and Matt Brennan. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.